When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Moors political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by Neil Jameson, who is an old friend of mine, I should explain. And Neil um, does something slightly different and it's kind of, he runs Citizens UK, which he helped found. He set it up back almost 30 years ago, yeah. which is a, for those who don't know about it, we'll explain in more detail, but it's a community organising group, and it's probably been, and Neil can be modest about this, but I can say it, more influential than almost any other major organisation in the country. It's changed government policy, it's campaigned on issues from debt to the living wage to refugees which have shaped and made our country a better place in many ways. Thank and you. the guy behind this is, I'm delighted to say, is, is with me. And we're going to talk about what is Citizens in the UK, what is community organising. And I should add one last thing is Neil is stepping down in August. So we're going to look back at, at his career and then what's next. Sure. So, Neil, welcome. And welcome, thank can, you. Can you just start off by explaining, for those who don't know, um, what is Citizens UK? How did it come about? Well, just to uh, thank you very much for your introduction and a generous um, summary of what we do. It isn't me who's done it, it's thousands of people who have been prepared to be and uh, welcome the opportunity of being organised. So our brief is to develop people's capacity to participate in public life. That's a charitable objective, and we've had it for 30 years. It served us well. We, are, we do politics, but we do politics as the Greeks did, which is the city-state. We do democracy, which, of course, is from two Greek words, demokratia, which means people power. Uh, we don't do partisan politics. We respect it, and we're quite glad there are people that also do it. But we do non-partisan politics, which is, we think, ancient politics. Uh, we have an alliance now of 400 institutions, extremely diverse, mosques, churches, synagogues, trade union branches, schools, student unions, one or two businesses. And that is the rich membership. So we're a membership organization. People pay to be in membership. We don't take money from the state, and that has served us very well. So nobody can cut us apart from our members which keeps us accountable to them and um, in control, effectively. So can you just talk a bit about the gestation of, of this? Mm. Where did community organising start and what actually does it mean in terms of kind of practical sense as well? Okay, well, I played a significant part insofar as in 1979 I had the chance through a Churchill Fellowship to go to the States and uh, those sorts of fellowships help a lot to see things which might possibly happen here or somewhere else. And I saw these big alliances there, which um, honour a guy called Saul Alinsky as their founder, uh, and they are roughly the same as we are now. We honour lots of other people, but definitely Saul Alinsky was significant in the growth of organising in this way and promoting radicals, um, not liberals, to do this sort of work. Uh, in, I organised in East London. I came to L East London in 1994. Just back to Saul is quite an influential figure. So he was an American based in Chicago. Correct, in the 30s. In the 30s, who inspired Barack Obama. Uh, Indeed, yeah. many Obama, other people. Obama became an organiser using the same methods for and, did two years as an organiser. And, and this was, and some say it kind of was partly how he ran his first presidential campaign was based on a kind of community organising method. But, but, yeah. but so what Solinsky did was he, he went into communities. Well, his and, story is interesting. I mean, he was a criminologist. He was sent into the, what the, what's called the back of the yards in Chicago, which is back of the station, basically, uh, to work out why there were so many gangs there and, and to do a sort of an analysis of gangs and gang activity, which is obviously current now because we have that problem in, in London and other cities. 
His analysis was that actually gangs have thing, good things going for them, which is they give people identity, they're well organized, they give people recognition, they promote loyalty and solidarity. However, they also use violence and intimidation to get what they want. So he looked for an alternative to gangs and found it in the Catholic Church, the Irish Catholic Church, which was a sort of gang, well, it wasn't a gang, but it was people coming together, mostly the parents of the gang leaders, who were honoring a bigger struggle, a bigger person, a bigger mission. This was in the 30s after they'd arrived in Chicago, didn't know anybody, but they knew the Catholic Church. And at the time, the Catholic Church, and it wasn't everybody who was keen on it, was looking for some meaning for themselves. So he decided to organize the Catholic Church and then other churches and other traditions along the way, particularly the trade unions. And organized to do what exactly? Because this is quite fundamental. What you're still doing now. Exactly, it's relevant relevant for now. We both did the same thing. To get people to participate in public life is critically important. And it's fortunately, I think we're the only organization with that as a charitable objective here. I don't think he used that language. He would say they organise, and frankly, I would say we organise for the one thing that we have discovered makes a difference, which is power. We know that the people that win are people that take power seriously. The people that lose in any campaign or justice activity are people that find power um, unpleasant, contaminating, and not a thing they want to get involved in, and are preferred, bizarrely, to lose than win anything. But we have learnt the hard way that by organising people, as Alinsky did, in the same way, non-partisan, uh, around issues that people could agree on, and there's many of them, not around, never around ideology. We never talk about Christianity or Islam or whatever it was then, or the Catholic Church or abortion. I'm going to talk about faith in a minute. Yeah. But you organise people around their, their, their self-interest. Their self-interest is survival and recognition. And how do you give them power? Once you've identified the issue, how would you then empower somebody around that? The, well, it's the vehicle of, of organising. We organise only people in institutions. In my experience, having spent 20 years before this organising individuals in tenants groups and so on, it, was, it came to me almost as a flash seeing this going on in the States, that it's much quicker to organise people in institutions, partly because the institutions they've created, and were created by their parents and others, like, if you like, the Catholic Church in Chicago, are very precious. They put money into it. They don't have to put money into it. They're voluntary. Uh, They have a rule book which says you can do stuff and you can't do other stuff. They're not perfect by a long shot, but they are honoured by people in their sweat labour on a regular basis every Sunday, every Friday, of course, here now in London in mosques and every Saturday in synagogues to a greater good, a greater aim than just uh, putting bread on the table. So that's what we organise people from their institutions. There are new institutions coming on board all the time. We're blessed in some places by a strong relationship with trade unions. It rather depends on the, the gatekeeper of the unions, so far as we're concerned. It's mainly Unison that is taking a series. Naswood is beginning to... Um, sometimes they misunderstand the purpose of the organisation, which is not first and foremost campaigning. It is first and foremost giving our members recognition. I now think that is critical to the human condition. And of course, it's the bit that's missing in traditional partisan politics. And when you say, so these are people who have been voiceless, and yes. so the recognition is giving them a chance to be able to speak to... Yes. It's a deal. If you organise, and if you organise with people that you think you don't agree with, particularly because diversity is magic, it's the chemistry that's missing in uniform organising, effectively, uh, in just, just the Christians or just the Labour Party or just the Tory party. By organising consciously, diversely, people in a way, they're more nervous, they're more polite, they're more respectful of each other's traditions, which gets them through to, very quickly, I hope, well, what can we organise? Now, now we've learnt about power, and we understand power is basically a good thing if it's connected to other people and if there's a way of accountability, which is the payment of dues and the membership, then what can we do together? And usually we start with, as Alinsky did, the street. If we can't organise the street, we can't organise the world. So scroll forward a bit now. You've been out to America, you've seen this firsthand. You you come back to the United Kingdom, you've been working in the the charity sector primarily. And then you, you start this first in Bristol, is that right? That's right. It took me 10 years to get there because so, I had to find a salary for myself. Organisers so. are paid. We pay a decent 
wage. We now have 50 professional community organisers. We count through your good offices, call on others who are radical but equally are optimistic and equally see the point of institutions and equally have a sense of humour to consider being a community organiser. It is a vocation in my experience and I'm blessed I've had this privilege of 30 years now. So I came back to Bristol where I was living, I got four children which I love and my wife and we weren't in a position to move but actually Bristol was the right size to start mainly from me but we did some good stuff. I organised a the first organisation took 18 months, 27 institutions in membership. So literally you went around knocking people's doors saying, I want you to come together as a community organisation. Not, not quite like that. I mean, I had some smidgen of relationship with some of them. It only usually takes three or four people to get the idea, and then they pass me on to someone else. You should try so-and-so, and what about that head teacher, and what about the Hindu temple that nobody takes very seriously and gets a lot of vandalism? And... On the basis of one-to-ones, the sort of meetings we're having now, uh, persuading people to come to another meeting where they meet people that are like them, they don't look like them, their world and their ideology is very different. But so long as we stick to the issues like, uh, what's it like living in Bristol? We do a lot of things which we call rounds, which is where people say who they are and what matters to them. And a big question which draws out from people big things is what's happening to families in your institution. We exist, I'd like to think, not just for families, for individuals, but frankly, families has got children in and all that, so on. And, and, and the imam and the head teacher and the priest all have an issue about what's happening to families now, let alone 30 years ago. And that's how the living wage came, through rounds of people like I've described, talking about what's happening to families in East London. But this was fast-tracking into 2001. So... I cut my teeth in Bristol, organising in a city I knew, with 27 institutions, which on a good day could turn out 2,000 people. The turnout is critical for the glue that holds people together. That's the other thing these institutions have got, is it, which is a, a glue which is under threat by social media in many ways. I mean, people think they can change things by tweeting and so on. It has its place, and I tweet. Uh, but it's not the so way. So you're of almost the kind of the opposite of these people who sign online petitions totally, and yes. vent their anger, as you say, on social media, yeah. uh, or you know, or cast their vote once every four or five years yeah. in a general election. Yeah. This is much more hands-on, face to face, face to face. Can't be done really internationally. This work, although the model is now growing in other cities and other parts of the world, in. Uh, Denmark and Sweden and Germany and Australia, we are now part of a sort of sisterhood of people that recognise the power of these institutions to defend us against the alternative, which is individuals on their own. Individuals on their own are not very subtle. As you say, you can sit in front of a screen, cast your vote, express your opinion, be foul to people, and there's no comeback. But face-to-face, in an institution that meets regularly every week, there is a comeback. You're not allowed to be rude to people, basically, or else there's a bad feeling about you, basically. There is a sense of decency in an institution which is questing for a better world, whether that be union or mosque. And um, it allows people to be a bit more subtle about the issues that they're worried about, families and bringing up children and those sorts of things, which are big deals. The job of the organiser is to build the alliance, which is what I did in Bristol. In 1994, I was invited, following an inspection, effectively, from some of the bishops in East London who'd heard about what we were doing, and they came and sat in on a big assembly. We had about 1,800 people with the police chief at the time, and the issue was, as it is now almost, the accountability of the police, stop and search, um, the, the failure of the police in those instances to give people a receipt they're supposed to have if they've stopped and searched, which is like, this is I'm PC so-and-so and I've done this, they just weren't doing it. At uh, which the uh, head of the police stormed out of this assembly and um, that was interesting, it brought tension to the organisation. It isn't something we want to happen, but a packed assembly is magic in a democracy. I'm going to come on to that because okay. I, I haven't been to one. I, I, 
it's a really interesting event. Yeah. I, so you were then invited to, to East London and you yeah. set up something called Telco. That's right. Which I cannot, what the acronym stands for. So the, the East the London Communities Organisation. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was the kind of that was the kind of the the, the, the seedbed from which London citizens, London citizens and which is when I first came across you. That's right. And and, and, and the Citizens UK has always been around. Actually, we wouldn't call the Citizen Organising Foundation, but to think it was yourselves actually. The Mer- I think maybe even you actually, Jason. I persuaded you to try and change your name because I said you said London That's too much of a mouthful. I said it was too London-centric, actually, and I thought you are going to be a national organisation. You can't have a London name. Well, I thank you um, for that well, suggestion. No, I'm blushing well. slightly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, and, and from London Citizens, yeah. this grew into Citizens UK. And now, so, just actually, Citizens UK was the start. We had to have a vehicle to do the very thing that we do still, three times a year, which is national training, it's called. And this is the training that Obama attended. It's the training Martin Luther King did. It's the training that came out of a variety of traditions. For the civil rights movement, it's based in uh, Tennessee Highlands, Highlanders School, which still exists, and trains people in a methodology and with tools that are as up-to-date now as they were when the civil rights movement started. Borrows from the holy traditions of why we exist and so on. And um, we have had in Britain about 3,000, 4,000 people if you're right, go through that training. Some Labour politicians, Tessa Chow, the late Tessa Chow, wonderful. She came on it after the Labour Party lost in uh, 2010, as did other Labour Party politicians. One of the Miliband's did it. Yeah, well, Miliband did it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. James Spinell has done it, and <clears throat> we welcome anybody from any tradition who wants to look at politics a different way. Really, uh, as I say, partisan politics has its place, but 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 it's a greater challenge to encourage folks who've given up on partisan politics and they don't want to be Labour, they don't want to be Tory. In my experience, people are a bit of both, basically. Cautious, but would like to be radical. Want better wages, but not at any cost. Like refugees, but not everybody. That sort of thing. Uh, and there's no party that stands for that. It's, it, we're, our members, therefore we are, moderate. However, we are one organised. And it's possible to be well organised in order to get the things you do, and thank you for the recognition you gave us. We have got some very significant systemic changes in the system as a result of being well organised. And as you said, one of the things you do is you, you do the kind of a regular local community meetings. But in, yeah. in, in, in London, for example, I went to a, what you call a London Assembly, yeah. which was you packed out the barbecue yeah. and you yeah. had representatives from all the London boroughs, all 32 London yeah. boroughs. Yeah. And it was almost like a, um, a kind of um, American South Church meeting mm. in terms of its enthusiasm and kind of lots of singing, lots mm. of shouting out. Um, but it was what I liked about it, and I went quite cynically, mm. I have to admit, was it was actually people in London who aren't necessarily very representative. Mm. But more a phone representative of London, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. had all kind of types of Londoners there, yeah. but there often many of those are ones who don't, as I said previously, don't have a voice, and there they were on stage and incredibly proud. Yeah, yeah, including and a lot of irregular migrants, of course. That was one of the issues we were focused on then, and called strangers into citizens. So in a way, they shouldn't have gone public, but they were protected by their neighbours to tell their story of what it's like to be irregular here with no papers. That led to, it never called an amnesty, but a um, uh, admission effectively by the Home Office. There were large numbers of people here with no papers. And in our experience, thousands of people then got permission to stay here. Below the radar, we didn't shout about it, but there's definitely did. And I meet now regularly people who said, without you, we would never have got permission to stay here. I meet young people whose parents were given permission to stay here. The Chinese community benefited tremendously that. The disappointing thing, of course, was once people get what they want, they stop organising. We should have learned from the suffragettes that they should have continued organising. And, of course, they, once they got the vote, thought that was it. It's never it, in my experience, because you can never quite get what you want. But it is the joy of getting something which is a new experience for people, particularly young people. And, and all the issues which you raise and campaign on hmm. and they grow out 
kind of organically from yeah. the conversations you're having. So it's you listening yeah. to what the community wants and then going, hang on, that's yeah. a that's got salience. That's you know, so mm. whether something like the Living Wage campaign, yeah. which is proving, I mean, it's, again, we've got to keep organising. Sure, it's proving sure. very successful. You know, you have large companies now sure. boasting that they pay the living wage yeah. because it's good PR for them. Yeah. Um, and it's even better for their workers. Yeah. Uh, and and then you did the campaign on on debt. That again is work in progress, but yeah. it's still it well, raised the issue. Yeah. And it was the first cap on interest rate was introduced by George Osborne in two thousand and thirteen. Yeah. So that was after the Barbican Assembly was in uh, two thousand and eight. It took there for five years in a way for uh, the Chancellor to see the sense in. Not just us, other groups saying that uh, debt is out of control in Britain. The role of the payday lenders and the cash shops and so on was, is ugly in our inner cities. And when he introduced the first cap on interest rate since 1857, when uh, anti-usury legislation was applied, uh, there's no question payday lenders left Britain in very large numbers. Not enough, of course, because the cap is quite high. But we definitely claim that one as a win. Housing. I can keep going through this. Housing. Well, <laughs> let me tell you about what the, the best thing, frankly, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. Is recently the local elections. So fast forward to a few weeks ago, basically, local elections in London and other uh, areas. We managed, our members are now used to using the opportunity of an election not to get their favourite person in uh, as a councillor. If they can do that, that's fine but more to get the issues of the organisation taken seriously. So these assemblies have now become the norm, and we are practised at a bit of music, a bit of razzmatazz, a reading from the Quran, if that's necessary, and it often is, uh, and then welcome the leader of the council, whoever it is, two, definitely two parties, possibly three, who may be um, taken seriously, or the mayors, of course, who come. We run the biggest show in town in anywhere we are organised, which is now 11 major parts of uh, England and Wales. Uh, and each assembly has a three or four point proposal, which has been worked out beforehand. The candidates know it's coming. If elected, will you accredit as a living wage employer? This time, after the 23 assemblies, five local authorities that hadn't accredited, though said they were paying the real living wage, agreed to accredit. The biggest thing for us is what we've worked on and. 2004, we were advised by, we, the, the issue of affordable housing in London was growing very seriously then, and we went around almost the world to find what is the solution to the cost of housing. We learned that if you take the market out of, as, as, it, as with wages in a way, the housing, then it is possible to build houses for a third of the market rate. The only way you can take the market out is by doing something about land. And we were advised by a wonderful guy called David Rogers, who was the, worked for CDS Cooperatives, that in his experience of like 40 years in the industry, this was the only solution to affordable housing. So-called 30% affordability is so-called because affordability is based upon the, the market. And as soon as people sell those houses, the market takes over. So the big victory from the most recent spate of um, 23 citizens' assemblies, such as Milton Keynes and Leeds and Birmingham, and then 18 London boroughs, is a thousand homes, a thousand a land for a thousand homes dotted around the place, bits and pieces of land, bits of boroughs have already identified the land. I think we just cracked, it, with the support of uh, local uh, elected members, who themselves have been seeking the solution the past, the only solution was, is it 30%, is it 40%, is it 50%? Boris said it should be 80%. Uh, Ken tried for 50%. We work very closely with the Sadiq Khan and full of respect for him. He's trying to get everybody to have 30% and that's a struggle in many places. That has its place, but as I say, it becomes a shimmer once the properties are sold. So um, in, tw in 2008, Boris did after considerable pressure, uh, agreed to give us a small amount of land in the Mile End, uh, sorry, 2012 this was, and we managed to prove by piloting that it is possible to sell one and two bedroom and three bedroom places at a third of the market rate. Hundreds of families applied for those 
We had to follow the planning applications and planning permission from Tower Hamlets Council, who were delighted at this opportunity to, because it was only for Tower Hamlets residents, they had to be resident for five years, they had to be, and also had a, and this was up to the mayor then, John Biggs, they, they, he, he, the requirement was they had to have done something for civil society, being school governor or something like that. So it wasn't for everybody, and they had to be living in overcrowded accommodation. That's the, that is now the criteria for the thousands of families who will benefit from this land that is now coming forward by local authorities looking again at the bits of land they've got. Also churches have got land, some private landowners are saying we've got a bit of, a bit of land. If we can crack the problem of affordability, then frankly, it's very good for institutions because the mosques, you know, East London is full of empty synagogues because the Jewish community left because they couldn't afford, or partly they left because they wanted to go somewhere else and they had more money, so they wanted to spend it elsewhere. But in my chapel, where the East London Mosque is a fantastic member of Citizens UK, they will be left stranded if they don't do something about housing. That's not their job, but actually, you know, pragmatically, I think every school should have a housing strategy, otherwise the schools will run out of parents. People will move, they talk as it is about the churn, they can't get... So the changing demographics means that these communities are at risk because there's not sufficient housing to keep Correct. supporting them. And there's not sufficient housing for nurses to live in, so they have to live further and further, same with teachers. It affects the structure and the fabric of society in a city like London. One of the things that strikes me is, is that you seem to have, because you have such deep and kind of you know successful roots in communities, mm. that you seem to be have a better antennae for the problems which are coming up from many mm. politicians. Does that kind of is this fair on the politicians, or are they just not embedded enough in the local communities that are there to serve, or is it just you're better actually at listening? No, I wouldn't say we're better. I mean, I'm full of respect for anybody that stands for public office. And eventually, we get to work well with them. Eventually, because initially, obviously, when we started, there was suspicion, are we American, are we some sort of moral rearmament offer? But as we've sustained 30 years of organizing, um, most parties are very respectful of the proposals we put to them. We always put them, we always warn them what's going to happen. There's no need to make people feel foolish or be foolish. Uh, we talk through the proposals that have come from our members, basically. Frankly, we cherry-pick the best issues from anywhere, as I say, around the world. There are solutions to the problems which some politicians wring their hands about, and part of the solutions aren't clearly available for anybody if you've got some power. But you've got to get the people in the room to negotiate. And have you ever been under pressure or considered or looked at the possibility of turning this into a, a political movement at all? No, never. Uh, not in my time, certainly. And I think it would be fatal if ever this happened. We're still in relationship with the Alinsky organisation in the States, and they've been going for 70 years. They, it, would, it would split the organisation for a start. There are people who've come out of the organisation, and that's happening to us, who choose to stand for one party or the other, and we wish them well. We don't tell anybody who to vote for, and they do pretty well because they never learnt these tools, which is you've got to listen to people, you basically got to spend time with them. Uh, they may they'll have the issues pretty sorted in a, in a way as to they don't always have the solutions, but basically uh, finding the issues and if you find the issues and the solutions, that's not bad for a politician that wants to take very seriously the issues of their members. If then the members benefit from that because they're party to making things happen, that's a double whammy. And the main way of, of, of bringing about change is, is by publicising what you do, mm. holding these meetings. Mm. It, it's all done and it's, it's a very kind of soft use of power, mm. isn't it, in many ways? And you, of course. And, and us, given you know, Well, I mean, we're blessed by certainly <laughs> our relationship with you and with the Mirror and with the Birmingham Mail and with the Greater Manchester. Uh, Manchester Evening News, your family, uh, <coughs> have, are critical because somebody's got to write. If we get no press, to a certain extent, it means it hasn't happened. Uh, we had the biggest assembly of uh, we've ever put on, 6,000 people in the copper box with the two mayoral candidates for London, and no press whatsoever. It was partly we didn't get enough, and it was the day that Ken Livingstone was um, asked to leave the Labour Party. 
I'm afraid, not you, but your colleagues were obsessed with that as a story, when the real story, we think, was 6,000 people negotiating with two people, Tory Labour, on the relationship that they wanted to have with their mayor. And uh, the question we ask in those vast assemblies now is, if elected, would you work with us? Do you recognise us as a political um, movement, effectively, of organised people with our own money? We will never come to you for money, but we will come to you for deals, effectively, which are public and covered by the press and so on. So we missed on that one, but nevertheless, we can now put on assemblies of 6,000 people who know not one heckle the whole night, lots of dancing, lots of razzmatazz, lots of testimony, the telling of stories of what it's like to be a young person who's 16, 17, born here but not a citizen, and having to go to Luna House in Croydon and pay a rapidly increasing amount, which we know is now the Home Office making a profit on the pain of these youngsters, was poignant. The young woman who told that story was the only person to get a standing ovation. And um, they, therefore we, we, we've got better at putting the assemblies on. As you say, there is razzmatazz, but young people aren't going to come to something like razzmatazz. I'm a Quaker myself, and Quaker's fine. Razzmatazz a bit unpleasant. <laughs> You're quite used to sitting in silence. Sitting so. in silence. <laughs> some of my Quaker friends come and say, why have you got to do music? And often we do music for the Pentecostals, of course, who love to praise the Lord and hallelujah. And the, some Muslims are a bit offended by it. But we, we're trying to mould together the whole. Uh, once we have sung this, the um, national anthem, and I wish we did it more often, frankly. Some of our left-leaning people thought it was offensive and they just remained sitting and so on. But the point is, we're trying to teach people there is, a, there is a bigger quest than these relatively small issues, which is recognition for the people of Britain to play a part in the decisions that affect their lives. Yes, I remember the, the 2010 general election. You, you, you got Cameron and Clegg and Gordon Brown. That's right. And Gordon Brown was extraordinarily hard. And he I, did well, yes. And exactly. I, I, I'm going to help you try to persuade, through my context in the Labour yes. Party, to try and persuade Gordon Brown to turn up. And he gave the best speech for the whole campaign yes. yeah, thank you. in yes. the Methodist Hall in central London. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and for the first time, he actually looked comfortable yeah, on the yeah, stump. It yeah. was, and, oh, and he gave this barnstorming speech. You should see yes. here was the son of a man, the son yes. of a Scottish priest. And he, yeah. and, he, and he fed from the audience. Yes. And, and, it, what I mean is it struck me about that, and like you just mm. mentioned your Quakers, I mean, is, how important is faith to Citizens UK, mm. or is it, is mm. it just that it, you happen to work with a lot of, kind of faith organisations and churches rather than... It's, it's, no, it's a pragmatic decision mm. that if you look across London, if you like from this tower, and you look where people are going and paying money, and it's not, well, there's bingo halls, of course, and there's mm. football, we'll talk about football in a bit, if you like, uh, but actually it is on a much more regular basis to the little chapels and the corner mosques and so on. So pragmatically for an organiser who's not ideological about that sort of thing, it's a shortcut. Let's see if we can organise these people who are already organised. They all have holy books, as far as faith is concerned. All the books say we should use peaceful means, you should never use violence. All of them in different ways say you're judged by what you do, not what you say. And usually they have a full-time, fairly exhausted person in charge who, if they're honest, welcome a bit of solidarity from someone else. So the job of the organiser is to be the, the, not the mentor of the person, because we've got quite a lot of young organisers, but to be the ally for the priest or the imam or the head teacher. Being a head teacher is a tough job. Getting those results are very important, but actually getting the parents on board is even more important for a primary school teacher. So some of the best things we've done have been with head teachers who recognise that SATS tests will not go up unless they do something about the quality of the housing the families are living in. And suddenly becoming the champion for the housing converts the tense relationship between parents and the head. The head's sending lots of messages home like you've got to read to your children and you've got to make sure they've got the name tags on their uniform to let's see if we can work together to improve your housing to a much more equal relationship and it's easy then for the head to say and by the way can you read a bit more to your children when they go to bed and make sure the television is turned off a bit more than it currently is 
So th these are very important things that are taking place, I think, within the life of the organization. It's not just the campaigns that we, we don't win them all, but we win quite a lot. It's more the, the quality of the relationships that are struck that enhance the role of the institution. I am firmly sold on these institutions. And I guess I want to say that if they fail us, then we've got to build new ones, um, which is what our four parents did. You know, the unions were not around until we became an urban area. And the unions mostly came out of nonconformism, Methodism, and the Catholic Church in East London here. There's quite a lot of discussion around at the moment, and it's partly Brexit inflected, mm. but not totally, about whether we are have stronger or weaker communities than we had 30 mm. years ago or 50 years ago. Mm. There's always a degree of nostalgia okay. in, in this discussion. And and whether people have become more isolated from their neighbours. Mm. And I'm just wondering what your perspective on this is. Are, are we, is it a, a, a false premise? Have we always been mm. actually a much more social country than we realise? Or is the fabric which knits us together, to use a phrase you used earlier, is that stretching? Well, I think it is, yes. I mean, our strap line when we started, which is still the same because it's a pretty good one, we think, is uh, reweaving the fabric of society. It means reweaving reconnecting people to each other. Much more difficult now, social media, the dominance of different television channels, the distraction of the entertainment industry, the lies of the football industry, which is support my team and we'll do fine. And as you know, we're very, our interest in football is, will they pay a living wage? I don't mind who wins. I do mind the amount of money that they're making in the Premier League and their refusal of many of those uh, football teams to even consider paying a wage that people can live on, who are their programme sellers and cleaners and so on. So uh, I, I think you're right. I think that, um, well, there is now a loneliness at Tsar. I think um, in the, the Secretary of State for Civil Society, effectively, uh, Matthew Hancock, and it's in his department that the loneliness responsibility now lies. That's a terrible indictment of this community. And there's no question, people are lonely. Uh, there are some wonderful experiments taking place which are recorded every now and then, sometimes by yourselves and sometimes by The Guardian. <laughs> On Froome, I think, had a, an experiment. For the health service was encouraged to, frankly, promote volunteering where people just visited each other. And they recorded the, uh, the decline in calls for A&E, the, the reduction in calls for doctors to come out and see people and the use of medication and so on was fairly dramatic next to another town which didn't t take up this very simple solution of people knocking on each other's doors, checking they're all right. It's really not rocket science. We have to get off the sofa. We have to at least know our neighbours in the street where we are. Uh, and if they are threatening because they are from a different colour or a different country and so on, that's just a pleasure if you spend time with people. And of course, the institutions is a shortcut. Yeah. There's research out, I, I, I read recently, that, that people who are lonely, it takes them longer to recover from a common cold, yes. or, or even actually yes. a, a wound. So yes. they have something like a blister. A yes. blister takes longer to recover if you're yeah. lonely yes. than yes. somebody who has friends and company and family. It's, it's, yes. So it has a kind of debilitating effect on people's kind of you know, mm. self-worth and sometimes mental health. It's and pressure on the NHS, of course. Again. I have to say, we think we have the solution to the public pressure on the <laughs> NHS, and it is, it's called organising, frankly. I don't think anybody leaves a citizens' assembly feeling worse about themselves. So the, the quest for well-being, which there's academic departments and everyone else pursuing across the globe, is not rocket science. Well-being comes from uh, uh, Professor Richard Layard wrote a book on happiness. And if you know, it's, it's a, there is a happiness industry. Fortunately, you don't have to read the whole book and neither do your listeners. It basically says that people are, who are in relationship in public life feel happier. It isn't money that gives them happiness. It's a satisfaction of, of their relationships and making a difference that gives people happiness uh, and stops them being lonely. So that's again why these institutions are so important and should not be undervalued. The struggle Citizens UK has really is to get some politicians who, and, and also some corporations, because we're not obsessed with politicians, but we're obsessed with anybody else who's out there struggling for this very thing that we, they agree is important, which is to be more powerful. 
uh, to take seriously the the packed assembly, the disciplined assembly, the assembly with people who know what they want. So much easier than putting up with a sort of rally of people who are just negative and pointless and, and violent in their um, the way they marginalise anybody who's trying to do any good for them. Uh, so I, I think that one solution to the NHS is somebody or something or the institutions that still exist just about under tremendous pressure to be given better value by the state, not money, but recognise that a Catholic church can make a big difference to the mosque, of course. We had for two years, a, we haven't done many of these, a report on what's happening to Islam. Um, the last Since 9-11, the plight and the challenge for the Muslim community in Britain has got greater. After every terrorist incident, it gets even greater again because of the um, stereotyping that takes place. And Dominic Grieve, ex-Attorney General, did us this good service of chairing a commission that went around the country to talk about what it's like being a Muslim in Britain. And mostly heard some very good stories from very loyal British Muslims, but also heard some terrible stories of people who's been you know, attacked, spat at. Uh, women in Islam not treated very seriously by their own institutions and so on. Um, but the Novelty about that report, as anything we do is, it was not for the state, it was not for the government, it was for us. I think it's sort of, the bad news about organising is we always start with, it's our fault, we're in this mess. Good news is, but there's something we can do about it. If you pay for the power, you mix up with other people, you uh, do some training, you um, uh, take seriously the institution you've got, which is not just about worship, it's about much, much more than that, a better thing, even Christians say the kingdom of heaven, is found on earth, not in heaven. We don't know about that bit, we have no position on that. But we do, I know, that people feel better about themselves if they can say, I was party to the creation of the real living wage in Britain, which has now 4,500 accredited employers paying this wage which came out of a little group in East London in 2001. So, cool. so looking, I'm going to ask you a question which looks backwards and a question which looks forward. Looking, looking back, what, what's been your proudest achievement? Mm. The, the sustenance of the model. We've got more sophisticated the fact that we've just done 20 years, celebrate the 20th anniversary of Talco, the East London organisation. The one in Bristol I helped start, has since closed, ran out of money, stopped doing public actions. We talk about these actions, not just assemblies, but sometimes they look like demonstrations or they're witnessing and so on. Is that, are they the oxygen of the organisation? We have to, people want to do stuff. And, and we offer them football or ice cream or something, you know, but the meat cake is how often the people have been treated. We say, there's something we can do about it. You've got to organise, you've got to come up with something which is specific, which we can do something about. We know how to clear up dog mess, for instance. Many of our organisations start with, the issue. What, what are the issues around here, says a good organiser, to a group of people who've come together, and they mostly say it's either litter, it's dog mess, or it's nobody knows anybody. And they, they never start with, we've got to leave Europe, never. In any time before the referendum, anybody mentioned the issue is Europe, in my experience. And, and in way, we're suffering the consequences. Uh, how do you clear up dog mess? Now you've told me you know how to do it. Yeah, well, <laughs> well <laughs> you do. The answer. Fortunately, yes, there are answers. And in a way that the state has picked that up, the little bags and little yeah, bins okay, and so on. Yeah. Uh, litter is, we've had Whitechapel, because that's where we're based, we do pretty regular campaigns, not really for us to clean up Whitechapel, but the first one we, we did, we discovered that of course all the litter bins had been taken away when the IRA was putting bombs in them and never replaced. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, the place was dirty and litter ridden because there were no bins. And we had a campaign which was really sexy in my opinion, which is, what do we want? Eight bins. <laughs> and I can point to the bins. And they're there. They're so there. That's a successful campaign. Yes. This is a successful campaign. It's not a good strap line. But. And, and <laughs> look, the man who put bins back on our streets is, is a, you know, that's probably yeah. why you've got your CV. And, <laughs> and looking forward, what, what would, where do you see citizens in 20 years' time, 30 years' time? 
I hope, that stronger. Uh, there are 10 other cities now, so we have 11 big chapters made up of major urban areas. There are 10 other cities that are basically following the method, and the, the discipline of organizing, raising, raising some money, beginning to meet together and say, what can we, well, unfortunately, they start off with what are the issues we can agree on, and the only issue we encourage people to focus on is how much power have you got. And mostly, if people are honest, they haven't got any power at all. They've got a smidgen, but very little. What do their people want? They want peace, harmony, and love, frankly. But you can't get that unless you participate in public life. So, um, and I, because I'm, I'm stepping back comfortable, because my deputy, Matthew Bolton, has, uh, who's done 15 years' work with us, is a brilliant organiser, has been appointed by the trustees to... Uh, be the new executive director, and he it's in very safe hands. He is a firm believer in the method, the model, the discipline. Uh, <coughs> he understands social media better than I, and or does it well, and is a great man to uh, uh, hand the baton over to, as well as the thousands of people who are now running the chapters, the borough groups, the campaign groups, and so on, who are themselves fantastic leaders many of whom have been with us from the start, once they make the decision to join, it's very rare we lose anybody. Getting them to make the decision, of course, is the challenge. Because there's, there's so many distractions, the fact we charge and no one else charges for this. There's lots of schemes around saying, we'll solve your problems, it's free, just sign this email and off you go. Uh, we make it difficult for people to join. You've got to pay, you've got to work with people you don't agree with. You've got to turn your people out. You've got to be embarrassed by the fact you can't turn people out. You haven't got to be that, but that's many of the case. When, For a priest, it's very painful who commits to bring 20 and then three people come and a dog. So we help people work on their following effectively, which is important and an ancient definition of what a leader is. A leader is somebody with a following. It's not a celebrity. And there are different models of leadership now. But you can't beat the leader with the following, so long as they're not hysterical and Adolf Hitler, effectively. <laughs> There's different models there, but it's, the, these civic leaders are very important. Some choose to go into Parliament, and as I say, thank goodness they do. But it's more difficult for them to keep a finger on what's going on locally. Uh, many members of Parliament have been very flattering about what we do and what we do. In, you know, the best possible model is we do our stuff, which is large numbers of people participate in public life. The MPs do their stuff. They listen to what we're saying, and if they agree with it, and if it makes sense, hopefully, they'll say, OK, we'll do it. People rarely say thank you, of course. That's a difficult one. Uh, but we have to live with that, I think. And also lots of people want to claim well, we thought of it first. We should get better at saying, well, actually, it was Mrs. Jones who mentioned this. I can identify, I could identify when we were just in East London, the person or the family that said, it's me you're talking about. Definitely I can do that with the issue of um, irregular migrants. I know the families, they're still involved, and they said, and one of them was our trustee, and we were talking about whether this was too risky a campaign to take on, which is to try and get the, go the government to introduce a one-off um, regularization and uh, he said it's me you're talking about and then he told his story of what it was like to be a regular here and he told a story of how he uh, had come as a student from Nigeria and had um, stayed on because he'd been active in politics in Nigeria and he brought his uh, wife here and they had for 11 years been living in the fear of a knock at the door and he remembered seeing a fight in his street and not being able to intervene because he couldn't, and if he did, the police would ask for his name, and he went in her and went to his house and shut the door. A lady saw him go in, and when the police came, she said, you should go and see Mr. So-and-so over there, because he saw it, and they opened the door, and, he, and they said, have you seen this? We understand you saw this fight, and he said, I saw nothing. And he's never forgiven himself for that. And uh, partly because it's sort of biblical, you know. Uh, so Peter said, I... I do not know Jesus. And a, a bit of that's going on in the world, I think, where people, I don't know the refugee, I don't know a refugee. It's a new project Citizens is very keen on, as is the Home Office, which is called Sponsor Refugees. It's a wonderful opportunity that Canada has pioneered for 40 years, where groups of people can sponsor refugees, find a house, furnish a house, raise some money, and the family come from the camps 
to be the responsibility of St James's Church or such and such a mosque or even a school. We've got two schools now going to do this. I think if we can get this mainstream and every institution, you've got to be a registered charity to do it, says we are sponsor a family, we would transform the, the whole narrative about immigration, which is usually dominated by people that don't know many, or refuse to recognise that their parents were once immigrants. And that's part of our responsibility, I think, is to make the country kinder, more honest about itself and its struggles and how much we do need diversity to keep us comfortable with the richness of who we are, the human condition effectively. So we look for these opportunities and this one has come from Theresa May. When she was Home Secretary she said we will look at the model of community sponsorship as happens in Canada. I've been to Canada, we've had have folks across, we have some money from a foundation to pioneer this and I think it's a wonderful opportunity for some of your listeners to think about not complaining about immigration, not getting too uptight about Brexit because there's not much we can as, as viewers do about it necessarily, but we can do something about the way we receive refugees within the number that the government has agreed. And if we get to that number, which is 20,000, and this is really rolling, I think it would be much easier for us to say, let's just carry on. And very quickly, what's next for you? Well, that last one is... I. I'm going to be chair of the advisory group for uh, Sponsor Refugees Foundation. My own Quaker meeting has agreed to sponsor a family after much back and forth and so on. And so it's so not really a retirement, is well, it? No, no, I don't want to retire. <laughs> I've never used that expression. I'm standing yeah. back and, as I say, fortunately I've got a wonderful guy who's going to take over, Matthew Bolton. Uh, <coughs> I will, I hope, be supportive of him. I will not get in the way. I don't want to get in the way. I, I want to organise. I'm an organiser. I think I was born an organiser. I was organising when I was seven, looking back. And I was organising definitely when I was 12, when we did a little action against the, the cricket pavilion was closed at the wrong time. <laughs> Something. This, but there's lots of people around. It's just that we've made a profession of it. We've revived the tradition of community organising in the UK. I mean, looking out from here, the docks were organised by people. Just a, we were in Canary Wharf when Sorry, we were based, and we are looking yeah. at the old docks from our window, where the old Millwall dock is just out there. Which clearly the market has organised very well now, but before the market it was basically the dock owners and the dock uh, workers who organised in order to get another penny in their wage in 1896, I think it was. Uh, no, it was, well, it was, but also the story is right, the Match Girls were the first to organise, helped by a middle class woman called Annie Bazant, who was an organiser. The Salvation Army were organised by two organisers, the Booths, Catherine and William Booth. Catherine was a very good woman organiser. So we honour Sololinsky, but not in an obsessive form. No, no, this is a long It's and a long and tradition of people organising yeah. for the same purpose, to get people to participate in public life. But Neil, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. And explaining what you've achieved over many years. Good luck with the, the new mission okay uh, and um, if people want to know more about citizens you, you've got a website it's yeah. very detailed it's it's uh, citizens www.citizensuk.org that's yeah. a bit yeah citizensuk.org uh, you can go to our website as well if you want to look at more podcasts uh, it's mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes that's a-y-e-s we're also on iTunes. Please go if you want to leave some positive comments and rate us. That's always helpful. And you can follow me on Twitter as at JBTMirror. And Neil's on Twitter at NJameson, J-A-M-E-S-O-N-C-U-K. Excellent. Thank you for listening. The eyes to the left. <laughs>